We invite you to open up a Bible with me this morning to the New Testament, beginning in the book of Acts. We'll begin in Acts chapter 6 today and then slide over to 1 Timothy chapter 5. And since we're having communion today, our kids are invited to remain here with us for the duration of the service. And let me just say to you kids, we are grateful for you. We're encouraged by your presence. We count it a joy to worship with you. And so thank you for gracing us with your presence during the rest of the service today. But we're in Acts chapter 6 and 1 Timothy chapter 5. And uh, I'll say sort of on the front end here, I want to read two texts, but this feels a bit different for me. It feels a bit strange for me uh, in this sub-series that we're doing on church leadership because uh, given the nature of the subject matter and trying to provide a, a broad overview of what the scriptures say, uh, this is departing sort of our, our typical structure of uh, diving deep into a, a singular text, expository preaching, exposing the truth of a particular text, hearing it, illustrating it, and applying it to our lives as God's people. And so the, just know that if you're visiting with us, this is a bit different uh, from what we normally do, but at the very same time, we, we want to lean into the Scriptures, we want to lean into God's Word, we want to hear what He has to say on the subject of church leadership. So a message today titled Shared Shepherding. We'll begin in Acts chapter 6, a text that we have read and studied uh, in recent days, and then, like I said, flipping over to 1 Timothy chapter 5. So if you find your place there in the Scriptures, we invite you, as is our practice here, would you join me standing, whether in body or in spirit, for the reading of the Word, God's Word, that is. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Luke records for us, he says this, he says, In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters... Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Verse 7, so the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now sliding over, 1 Timothy chapter 5, two verses there, verses 17 and 18. Paul is writing to Timothy, giving him instructions for the church, and in particular instructions for the church there in Ephesus. He writes, he says, The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For Scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Would you pause with me as we pray? No, God, this morning we invite you to lead us. We want you to lead us as we open your word, as we study your word, as we... We strive to open our ears to hear from you. Lord, we want to hear from you. So lead us now. Lead us clearly by the 
presence and power and guidance of your spirit through the proclamation of your word for the glory of your name. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we began uh, a new message series. We began a new series on leading God's people, uh, a biblical case for church elders. And so let me just encourage you right here on the front end, don't say this very often at all, but if, you, if you're interested in this, and I hope you are, if you're interested in what the Bible says about church leadership, and if this piques your interest, what's the pastor talking about, this idea of church elders, and you were not here last week, let me encourage you to go back and listen uh, to the message from last week, because in that message I really sought to lay a broad overview of what does the Bible say about this particular subject matter, in other words, to introduce it. And so where we'll go today uh, is building off of that. And so some of the things that we'll see today and I'll share today will be consistent. I hope it's all consistent with what was shared last week, but some of the things will be a review of what we saw last week, but some other elements of it will be new. And likewise, as we continue on in it uh, next week, let me just say this, this doesn't come out of uh, left field. It doesn't come out of the sky. This is something that, as I shared last week, I've been praying about and seeking the Lord in and even walking with uh, some church leaders through in, in recent months. And so even last fall, sitting uh, in a room with uh, a number of our own church leaders, uh, our trustees and deacons from last year, as well as some others, and walking through what the Bible says about this particular subject matter. And also, as we finish this series next week, uh, let me encourage you, if you're interested in hearing more, uh, to come to mark your calendars, a couple opportunities, May the 15th, that Sunday in the evening, and May the 25th, a Wednesday night, 6 p.m. both of those uh, days, for just an open and casual conversation about church elders. So not a sermon format, a time of review, but a time of, uh, of digging a bit deeper in just an open setting. Uh, with me. would love for you to come and, and be a part of those. You'll hear more about those. We'll begin advertising those, of course, this week. But elder, what is an elder? Elder is a biblical term uh, that predates the church. In the Old Testament, elders were leaders, leaders of clans and leaders of, of tribes serving as judges and administering justice. So they helped govern the affairs of Israel. Then we fast forward to, to Jesus' day, Jesus' time, and some members of the Sanhedrin, remember that the Sanhedrin was the Jewish uh, religious ruling council composed of uh, Sadducees and some Pharisees. Some members of the Sanhedrin are called elders, part of a, a leadership council. As we saw last week in the book of Acts, as the church is born, Paul appoints elders in new churches, a pattern consistent with what we read about church leadership throughout the New Testament. But church leaders, church elders, aren't so much a governing council. That's not the picture that we see. It doesn't appear to, to seem in the New Testament. Not so much a governing council as they are spiritual leaders describing mature men set aside to lead and to teach and to shepherd local churches. Elder is another name for pastor. In fact, the predominant New Testament word, the predominant New Testament title for pastor is elder. So an elder is a pastor and a pastor is an elder, same position in the local church. So when we read elders in the New Testament in connection with the church, 
think pastors. Same goes for the word overseer. Some translations, older translations, often translated bishop. Different titles for the same spiritual office. But let's take a moment, let's define uh, some terms before we press in a bit deeper. First, elder. Elders or pastors are servant leaders who shepherd the church to follow Christ. Elders or, or pastors are servant leaders who shepherd the church to follow Christ. So elders are pastors and part of the pastor's calling is to lead the congregation, to lead the church in ways that point to Jesus Christ. We see this quite clearly in Acts chapter 20, a text that we've also looked at and we looked at briefly last week as well. But in Acts chapter 20, Paul calls for a group of elders. Specifically, he calls for the Ephesian elders to come meet him. The elders, presbyteros is the Greek word, calls them overseers, episkopos, and tells them uh, to be shepherds. Poinio, the verbal form of poimen, is the New Testament word for pastor. He says, listen to what he says, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So he calls for the elders. He says, the Holy Spirit's made you overseers. Be shepherds, shepherd, pastor, the church of God, which he had, which he bought with his own blood. And so in the Bible, the church's leaders are called elders or overseers, and their primary charge is to shepherd. It is to pastor. First Timothy chapter five, Paul writes, he says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching, leading, teaching, teaching. And shepherding. So elders are, are servant leaders who shepherd the church to follow Christ. So what about deacons? Where do they fit into this? Well, according to the scriptures, deacons are leading servants who help care for the church's practical needs. Deacons are, are leading servants who help care for the church's practical needs. And we dove into both of these particular titles and positions and functions, ministries in the life of the early church back in March when we spent a week talking about the role and the function of a deacon and the role and the function of a pastor. But deacon means servant. It means servant. The Greek term diakonos is used 29 times in the New Testament. And most of the time, it's simply referring to someone who serves, someone who ministers, anyone, a believer who serves, a believer who ministers, but on a few occasions, three or four to be exact, it refers to a position in the church. And when it does, it's translated deacon. So deacons are official servants, we might say, leading servants charged by the church to help meet the needs of the church. Leading servants who help care for the church's practical needs. And we read Acts 6 today. Because it provides a paradigm for church leadership. The leadership ministry of the twelve, the apostles, with its focus on preaching and prayer, is assumed, it's taken on by the elders or pastors. And the serving ministry of the seven is assumed by, by deacons. This fits well with what we read in the New Testament. And so two groups, two church positions or offices established very on, very early on in the book of Acts in the New Testament. 
mentioned together elsewhere in the New Testament, namely 1 Timothy chapter 3, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. So let me say this before going any further, because I've already been asked it after last week's message. I'm not saying, nor am I advocating that elders replace deacons here at at Meadowbrook. Not, Not at all. Both elders and deacons are biblical offices in the church. We see that quite clearly in the New Testament. So what am I saying? I'm saying that we look at these two groups. That we look at these two groups, elders and deacons, in the New Testament, and then closely examine our own leadership descriptions in light of them. In other words, let's evaluate what we do by what the book says. So yesterday... Uh, my boys were in the back seat of uh, my truck, and we had left uh, a birthday uh, party, and we were headed to uh, a baseball game. And uh, uh, they had a party favor in hand, and they were op- opening that party favor and, and checking it out. And so I didn't know it right away, but what were they doing? Of course, they were opening stuff in it and, and tasting it, eating it, candy to be exact. And so I, I hear this. I see this sort of out of the corner of my eye. I see this little packet. Uh, and uh, I think it must be this right here. Uh, kids, what is that? Somebody just say it. I didn't hear you. Yeah, kids and adults. That was good. I like that. Thank you, Cammy. Fun dip, right? Fun dip. Like this, and this may just be me, but this is like a parent's worst nightmare. Uh, this is like uh, to candy, like what um, that BC powder stuff is to... Um, uh, to pain medications, like it's powder and it comes in quickly and hypes you up. It's like pure sugar. And no kid, like no kid can eat this without making a ginormous mess. And so I think they're eating this, but you know, whatever. It's my truck. My truck's not that clean. They're eating this stuff and I hear my boys talking back and forth. Oh, this stuff, this is terrible. This is so sour. I, I can't eat that. So no, sorry guys, you don't have to eat it. It's fine. It's fine. I'll get rid of it. No big deal. Well, then later I get back home and I'm cleaning out the car and I see... I see uh, the stuff there, and it's not fun dip. It's it's this, right? <laughs> it's, it's Kool-Aid powder. <laughs> like that little packet, it's about this big, makes two quarts of <laughs> lemonade, Kool-Aid lemonade. <laughs> no wonder you didn't like it. I'm thinking, I, I want to test it and try it out. And so I, I did. I said, it's pretty stout. Right? <laughs> doesn't take much, right? It's not meant to eat in that way. It's meant to mix up and make a drink, and it's delicious when it's used for the right purpose. Descriptions matter, right? They weren't interested in, one of them can't read, but they weren't interested in reading that at all. They just assumed they knew what it was. Let's try this and see what it is. Descriptions matter. That's a point that I want us to make. So when it comes to the way that we operate and what we call one another, and how we proceed with ministry and leadership in the life of the church, descriptions descriptions matter. We want to evaluate what we do and what we say based on what the Bible says. And one thing we see here in Acts chapter 6 is the whole church playing a role in leader recognition. We see this right here in Acts 6, the text that we read a few moments ago. The apostles see a need, they formulate a plan, they gather all the disciples meeting the whole church. Every believer And then they ask the whole church to choose spiritually mature men to be set aside for this particular deacon responsibility. Acts chapter 6, verse 5, we see this. It says, this proposal pleased 
the whole group, the whole assembly, the whole church. It pleased the whole group. They, the whole church, chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip, of course, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. It says they, the church, presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So as we think about church leadership, as we think about church polity, let's see the biblical pattern. And what's the biblical pattern? Well, in the biblical pattern, the Bible provides a model of congregational governance. A model of congregational governance. We, we noted this last week, but as Baptists, we're a congregational people. Because we believe that's the New Testament model. Jesus ruled, pastor-led, and congregationally governed. Right? Everybody plays a role in leadership selection, Acts chapter 6, and membership removal, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and other major church decisions. The whole assembly, right? the whole fellowship, every member of the body, the whole church has a responsibility and a role to play. And for us... This also means our leadership is, is local. It's from within. Right? There's not an outside board or an outside bishop that tells us how to operate, as is the case in some traditions. We believe the Bible provides a model of congregational governance and that the biblical pattern is multiple elders leading each local church. The biblical pattern is multiple elders leading each Local church. So according to the Bible, the church isn't a dictatorship, nor is it a democracy, a pure democracy, right? We operate in democratic processes, but it's not a pure democracy. Rather, it's to be a theocracy, Jesus-ruled, elder-led, or pastor-led, and congregationally governed. Now, reaching all the way back, let's reach way back in Scripture to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 18, we see an Old Testament Precedent for this. An Old Testament precedent for a plurality of leadership. You, you likely remember that particular story. Moses shares with this guy Jethro, his father-in-law, about all the Lord has done to deliver the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And so he recounts everything. Moses tells Jethro everything. The signs, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, God's miraculous provision of food and water. He tells him about the victory over the enemy, the victory over the Amalekites. And after hearing the news, Jethro puts his faith in the Lord. He believes and he worships God. It's a beautiful story. But the next day, the Bible says the next day in Exodus chapter 18, verse 13, I believe, Jethro watches his son-in-law. He wants to see this in action. He watches his son-in-law, Moses, and like every father-in-law, he's got some advice for his son-in-law. I don't know if your father-in-law ever gave or gives you advice. I think of my own father-in-law, and he was kind of just a, a, a patient type of person, an extremely patient person whose uh, mode of operation wasn't like to give you upfront advice, but to sit back and just sort of watch you and watch you fail and wait for you to ask help, right? Father-in-law, we, we, we give advice. Father-in-law's give, I'm not a father-in-law. I don't know why I said we. I'm not a father-in-law. Father-in-law's give advice. Here's Jethro, a father-in-law, giving advice to Moses, his son-in-law. And the Bible says that people would come to Moses with their problems, and Moses would listen to their issues all day long and serve as a judge for the people. 
Jethro sees this and he can't believe it. Listen to what he says. He says, what you are doing is not good. It's not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. Work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. And so he basically says, Moses, you're crazy. What are you doing? The task is too tall for you. And then he gives some advice. He says, select some qualified men with God-honoring character and set them up with you to help you judge the cases. He says, that will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. So essentially Jethro says, Moses, keep leading, keep shepherding, keep counseling, keep teaching God's word, but choose some godly men to help you. Choose some mature spiritual leaders to lead with you. And so he does. Moses does. And the principle that we read there in Exodus chapter 18 anticipates God's design for leadership in the local church. A principle of shared ministry leadership applied to the church with a plurality of elders or pastors. You, you might say, okay, Chris, you're, you're the pastor. We've, we've got ministers, we've got Sunday school teachers, we've got deacons, we've got trustees, we've got committees. What's the difference between our setup here at Meadowbrook and what we read about in the New Testament? And here's the key difference. Shared spiritual leadership. Shared shepherding. Like not simply shared leadership. We have that but shared spiritual leadership, meaning multiple pastors or elders set apart by the church to spiritually lead and feed and care for the whole congregation with the needs and interests of the whole church, the whole congregation in mind. Now, we walked through some texts last week, so I'm not going to read all of those this week, but you may jot down Acts chapter 14, verse 23. Acts chapter 20, verse 17, Titus chapter 1, verse 5, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 that we read today, and James chapter 5, verse 14. All places that refer to multiple elders or multiple pastors for a single local church. Shared shepherding by under-shepherds who will one day give an account to the chief shepherd for how they cared for his flock. That's Biblical eldership, and there are several benefits of it. And so that's where I want to lean for the remainder of our time, and we'll come back to this even next week as well. So last week, one that we mentioned was that uh, shared ministry leadership highlights the supremacy of Christ. Right? That it makes it doesn't make the church about any particular leader. Ultimately, it highlights the supremacy of Christ over the church. Today, I want us to lean into the idea of of pastoral help. So. A plurality of elders provides pastoral help benefiting the congregation. Plurality of elders, multiple elders, provides pastoral help benefiting the congregation. And next week we'll talk about accountability, pastoral accountability. Now let me be clear on this. I'm, I'm not advocating for more paid ministers, for more pastors. We have an exceptional ministry staff with exceptional gifts, a plethora of gifts called to particular ministries. 
nor am I suggesting another committee. We've got quite a few of those too. I'm talking about raising up and recognizing qualified men from within the church to share the weight and responsibility of shepherding the church to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I mean by biblical eldership. Multiple elders, a.k.a. pastors, called to lead the local church to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. A plurality of elders provides pastoral help benefiting the congregation. Also, how does this benefit the church? Well, number one, multiple elders allows better congregational care. Allows better congregational care. An elder is a pastor, and pastor means shepherd. An elder is called to shepherd the congregation. What's a shepherd do? Kids, if you're listening, thanks for hanging in there. Any kids? Shout it out. What, what does a shepherd do? Or not? We don't have a lot of shepherds around here, do we? And so a shepherd, a shepherd leads and guides sheep, right? Protects sheep, cares for sheep, provides for sheep. This is what a shepherd does. With the best interest of those he's caring for in mind. Shepherding imagery suggests careful instruction in the church, regular guidance, constant prayer, faithful counseling, and visiting those in need, all with selfless love. We talk about humbling. I, think I honestly literally sank in my chair this week because I felt like I was writing my own job description, one that I cannot satisfactory, satisfactorily fulfill, and then, and then giving it to those that are to hold me accountable to doing what God has called me to do. Right? The flock needs care. And one shepherd cannot adequately care for any sizable flock. Now, there are many who help care for the flock. Sunday school teachers, care group leaders, ministers, deacons, loving and serving one another, loving and serving the body of Christ, the church, in exceptional ways, God-glorifying and gospel-witnessing kind of ways. But what I'm talking about is holistic, broad-reaching, congregational care that is altogether different than the kind of segmented care that subdivides the church into compartmentalized age or interest groups. So when I say a plurality of elders, I don't think God intends for us to see our shepherds like we see politicians, like representing different caucuses or districts within the body of Christ. No, this is shared shepherding of the whole church with multiple Men sharing the burden of pastoral ministry. When I think about shepherding the church, when I think about caring for the congregation, when I think about the patience and tenderness the Bible seems to depict for that particular role, I think of someone that many of you know quite well, and that's this this man right here. For those that don't know, this is Brother Ron Sumners. This is my predecessor here at Meadowbrook who shepherded this church patiently, kindly, lovingly for 19 years, from 1993 to 2012, just over half of this church's history. This man, patient, loving. If you were part of this body, he knew you. He took an interest in you. He came to see you. He prayed for you. I have no doubt. A shepherd's heart. A primary 
The pastor's primary task isn't to run an organization, but to care for people's souls. And Brother Ron did that so well. Congregational care. But that's not all God calls pastors to do. Let's look back at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. The elders, pastors, who direct the affairs of the church well, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well, are worthy of double honor. Especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So right here we see two more elder responsibilities introduced. Leading the church and preaching the word. An elder is a shepherd, a leader, and a preacher. So the responsibility of leadership directing the affairs of the church is intended to rest upon the elders or pastors, those set aside as spiritual leaders of the church. So remember, Jesus ruled, elder led. Biblical elders lead, and we see here they they teach. This is where our Presbyterian brothers and sisters see a distinction between teaching elders or teaching pastors and ruling elders, ruling pastors. Some direct the affairs of the church while others labor in preaching and teaching. But most Baptists with elders, and there are many of them, and we'll dive into that more a bit next week, don't make this distinction in quite the same way. But we can see that there are those, no doubt there are those like myself, who by God's grace through you, church, are able to give themselves full-time to laboring in the Word. But no doubt, most elders cannot cannot do that. And Paul says the church ought to compensate well those who labor. Greek word is kapeao, meaning toil. Toil to the point of fatigue. It's work. That's what Paul's saying. Those who work over the Word, those who pour over the Word, those who study and teach the Word who labor over the word. Paul is saying, care for them, provide for them well. Biblical elders shepherd, biblical elders lead, biblical elders teach. And finally, biblical elders equip. They equip. Biblical eldership includes training others to teach and shepherd. It is investing in future leaders of the church. All right, so quickly, multiple elders allows better congregational care. And number two, multiple elders provides a balance of gifts and wisdom, a balance of gifts and, and wisdom. As I thought about this, perhaps, perhaps one reason, I don't know this with certainty, but perhaps one reason the New Testament hardly mentions any skills or gifts as prereqs for pastoral ministry. I think about this list, there's a list in First Timothy chapter 3, as well as Titus chapter 1, those lists focus on character qualities the exception of one gift that is clearly mentioned, that's being able to teach. But perhaps the reason there aren't a bunch of gifts or skills mentioned as prereqs is because multiple elders provides multiple gifts. Right? This is the principle of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. You've heard this text. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. The cord of three strands is not quickly broken. We think about the family and God's design for the family. Parents, ideally, two parents, a mom and a dad, leading, teaching, providing, 
caring for their kids, working together in that way. In many ways, the, the family is a microcosm of the church, of God's family, a family of, of faith. So how fitting it is for multiple leaders to invest in the care and the teaching, the instruction, the guidance, the protection, the shepherding of those in God's church, that we all may be presented as mature and blameless and pure in, in Christ one day. See, a plurality of elders provides pastoral help, benefiting the congregation, allowing better care, a balance of gifts, and encouraging every member to engage in ministry. Multiple elders encourages every member, every member of the body, every member of the church to engage in ministry. Shared leadership encourages widespread ministry in the body of Christ because it doesn't delegate ministry to something for a select few. Something only professionals, so to speak, do. A shared ministry takes the focus off of the paid staff and puts it on the average person sitting in the pew, which I think is consistent with what we read in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 4. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, which, by the way, is because of the Greek construction there is probably referring to one group, pastors, teachers, to equip his people for what? For works of service, for works of, of ministry, so that the body of Christ, so that the church may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You see, Jesus really cares about us. He really cares that we know Him. He really cares that we grow in Him. He really cares that we become mature in the faith, reflecting the character of the one who is our Lord and Savior, and that he cares about our growth in the gospel, rescuing us by his grace, and then maturing us so that we'll indeed live and walk in ways that reflect his grace. The church is not a social club. The church is not simply a, a group of friends with like-minded interests that we come together with for the sake of encouragement. It's not simply a, a friend group or family group that we lean on during difficult times. The church is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the church is God's plan to make the wisdom of God known to the nations of the world, to the universe even Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, he says his intent, God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, to the spiritual beings themselves, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in him, in Christ. Through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and with confidence. See, God wants us, He wants you to know Him, to be rescued by His grace. And He wants you to be part of His bride, of His church. And the way that you become part of His church is you first become part of His people. 
And the way that you become part of God's people is by turning to the person who gave his life as a payment for your sins. His name is Jesus the Christ. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Messiah. The Son of God and Savior of the world who took on human flesh and lived the life that we didn't. The only perfect life, the only sinless life so that he could lay down his life as the perfect substitute. The all-sufficient substitute once and for all. Taking the penalty of sin. Taking on our sin. The Bible says he became sin who knew no sin. He took our guilt and our sin upon himself. And in exchange he gives us his righteousness, his right standing before God. He is our Savior. He is Lord and He is the head of the church. Do you know Him? Do you know Jesus the Christ? Well, this morning as we continue our time of gathered worship, we, we want to be reminded of Jesus the Christ, of His sacrifice on the cross, His blood that was shed, His body that was broken on our behalf, that we might be forgiven, that we might know Him. And we do that, church, we do that through communion, through the Lord's Supper, as we look back and we remember that Jesus paid it all, that He paid the price, that this was God's plan, that He gave His life, He paid the price for us. He defeated sin and death as He hung on the cross and as He was placed in the tomb and raised from the dead. We look back and we see Christ and we know, according to the Word, we can look up and know that Christ even now is reigning on high. He is at the right hand of the Father. He is on the throne of heaven. He rules and reigns today. And we look around and we see one another in the body of Christ. We see brothers and sisters. We see a faith family saved by the same grace, covered by the same blood, welcomed in to his body. Part of the redeemed. And we look ahead and we anticipate, according to the word of God, according to Jesus himself, that he will one day come again. He will return. We anticipate. The Bible says whenever we participate in communion, whenever we take the bread and drink the cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. We anticipate he will come again. And so as we take in just a moment, let's reflect on Christ. Let's worship Christ. Let's take, let's eat, let's drink, let's remember, and let's worship the one who provides forgiveness of sins. It's our deacons who are serving would come, if they would come to tables at this time, we encourage all of us, prepare our hearts. If you know Christ, if your trust is in Christ, if your faith is in Christ for salvation, we invite you to participate this morning. Whether you're a member of this local church family or not, if you know Christ, we invite you to the table to receive the elements. If you don't, let me encourage you to take this time and to reflect on what you've heard, to reflect on Jesus, perhaps to spend time in prayer before the Lord, asking Him to guide you in the way that He would have you go. I want to pray, and then after I pray, you're invited to any of these tables. You can come, take the elements, be served at the table, or if you prefer to be served where you are, we've got some prepackaged elements as well that a couple of our deacons will be bringing around, be sure to signal that you'd like them to serve you. But let's pause together. Let's pray, and then you come. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for, for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his, his blood that cleanses and covers us. Oh, God, we thank you for forgiveness of sins, for reconciliation with you. We thank you for the hope of eternity. We thank you for the promise of Christ coming again. Oh, Lord, as we eat, as we drink, help us to remember, help us to anticipate, lead us to worship. 
It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.